Welcome to Beth Takoon and the Spiritual Season series, where we are exploring the weekly Torah portions and the yearly Moedim in the light of God's overall pattern of salvation. This week we are in Parsha Ha'azinu, the single long chapter of Deuteronomy 32. And so, you know, at first I had planned to do a combined Ha'azinu and Yom Kippur teaching, but I found more connections here in Ha'azinu than I expected to, which is usually the case. So I've decided to do two teachings this week, which is a bit of a challenge for me. So be looking for a separate Yom Kippur teaching this week as well. Well, the majority of Ha'azinu is what we call the Song of Moses. And so we'll get to a summary of the song itself in a minute, but let me address uh, the bits that come after the song. The portion actually starts with the song and then continues with a couple more details. And so after Moses and Joshua, by the way, deliver the song to the people, Moses tells them to put the words of the Torah on their hearts because this will be life for them. Torah on the heart will be life for them. And by this word, they will prolong their days in the land. Well, in the very last scene of the portion, God directs Moses to go up Mount Nebo to be gathered to his people. And God adds, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel. So the portion ends with what we could call a rather strict judgment of God, which we've heard before, but it's repeated here. But God adds that Moses will be able to see the land just at a distance. He won't be able to go into the land that he is giving to the sons of Israel. And so, in fact, this is a portion that as a whole leans hard toward this idea of strict justice, which is a theme of especially the early part of the month that we are in, the month of Tishrei, this strict judgment. And so turning to the song itself, the purpose for it is given in the previous portion, Nitzavim Vayelik, when God tells Moses that after he dies, after Moses dies, the people will stray into idolatry and God will become angry with them. God then tells Moses to write out this song and put it on their lips, which is an interesting way to say to, you know, put it into their collective memory, put it on their lips so that the song will act as a witness against them. So in other words, the Song of Moses is meant to lead to an awakening in the future, wherein the people realize that their drifting away from God is the cause of the devastation they are experiencing at that time. So it's a message from the past that will say to them, when God blesses you and you are comfortable and you kick against him, he will turn his face from you and you will suffer. But in the end, God will purify you. So take heart. Don't give up on God. He saw all this from the beginning. Be hopeful and repent. Return to him. And so in a way, the song is a call to the future, to repentance, which is also a part of this month of Tishrei, especially these first 10 days. So the song speaks of God finding Israel in a howling wasteland, and rescuing him. Like God comes across this infant that's cast aside in the wilderness, which is imagery from one of the prophets. And God encircles him and cares for him, lifting him high and giving him honey from the rock. In verse 15 of this chapter, there is a shift 
to Israel walking away. The verse says, but Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook, forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. And so the bulk of the song describes Israel's idolatry and perversity and God's punishments from famine and plague and beast and crawling things and foreign armies. At the end of the song, there's another shift in which God says that he will take vengeance on his enemies. And so there's a kind of resolution here. The final verse of the song says, just listen to how hard this verse is in a way. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him, and cleanses his people's land. And so, of course, we have to come to this resolution at the end. We always find this resolution at the end. But let me point out that though we have a sort of resolution here, this song is focused on God's attribute of justice, which is hard-edged and exacting, and measure for measure. One of the main words in the whole song is the word rock which we have already encountered twice just in the couple of verses that I've mentioned uh, already from the song. A rock is hard and unyielding. And so let's keep this in mind as we continue exploring. We're seeing one side, really, of God's character emphasized here in this song. But, of course, we have another side to God's character as well. And so as God promises, the Song of Moses was preserved by Israel. Let's um, look into now how this song was actually used historically. So they didn't forget it. The Kehoe Komish describes how the song comes to be used at the temple, specifically on the Sabbath. So it was sung during the extra sacrifice that was done after the regular morning sacrifice on the Sabbath. And so this extra Shabbat sacrifice is called the Musaf sacrifice. But interestingly, the whole thing wasn't sung each Shabbat, the whole song that is. Instead, it was broken up into six parts that were sung on six consecutive Shabbats until the song was finished. Now, one thing that strikes me personally about this is that six is not the complete number that seven is. If you're going to divide it up, Why don't you just divide it up into seven, which is kind of the more number of completion? Why divide it into six? So it strikes me as indicating that there's something about the Song of Moses that is not complete on its own. And so let's just file that away for the moment, this idea that there's something missing here from the Song of Moses. But the Kehoe Komish brings up a second problem, not or issue, not just this division into six instead of seven. It says that we're commanded to be joyful on the Sabbath. And many of these six parts are very negative. How could it be divided into six parts and sung specifically on the Sabbath? And so the Kehoe Komish comes up with a solution. It says that the choice of this song for the Sabbath at the temple means it's simply has to be joyful. This means then that those singing it simply 
had to be seeing in each part of the song a cause to be joyful, right? It's just not an option to not be joyful. And so it's like they looked at the words, understood them, and saw beyond them. They saw a bigger plan at work. They saw all this negativity as God's love for them. They saw the punishment as what was needed to bring them back to him. And they were able to tap into that deeper purpose in order to be joyful when singing this song on the Sabbath, during this extra Musaf sacrifice of the Sabbath. And this idea of seeing below the song's surface to the love that is underneath it brings us to the title of the portion, Ha'azinu. Ha'azinu means give ear. The first line reads, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And so this word ear is, is in, is the root of Ha'azinu. And so the, the title refers to the calling of the two unchanging witnesses, the heavens and the earth, to come close and to hear the song and be witnesses to the fact that this song was indeed given over to Israel uh, ages before, you know, before they um, have drifted away from him and kicked. But more deeply, the ears and hearing imply a certain way of sensing the world that requires integrating in a, in a more profound way the right and the left and even the past and the present in time. So we've talked before about how hearing especially brings with it the idea that we have to make meaning from the parts we're hearing. Vision is a little different. We see and we know. Now, of course, there is the brain interpreting what we're seeing and all of that. And there is a right and a left when it comes to seeing. But hearing is just a matter of... um, it's a proportion that ears are much further apart than the eyes are, and that has meaning. And so with vision, we see and we know that the understanding, we could say, is immediate. But hearing is, is anchored in time, and in order to make sense of it, we have to take in each word as it comes. And then at the end, we put it all together to, to make meaning out of the sentence. And so Israel is being told, Listen to this basic song in the universe and understand that God is above and beyond it. He is the source of it. Listen deeply to this song. It's a good song, and every part of it is good. Use your ears to hear the depths of the song, Israel. And so it's, it's not easy for God to discipline those he loves. We should hear that in the song. This isn't easy for him to do. But he will do that for our good. And this is really the deep root of joy in our lives, our ability to look past the surface to see God's hand and his love beneath all of it, both the smooth and the rough that we experience, the good times and the tough times. It's all him and it's all good. And so if we can keep hold of that always, Even as we're walking through those rough times, there's always a joy that we can have beneath the pain. And so this is the place that the Levitical choir had to reach as they 
They had to reach to that place as they sang Ha'azinu on the Sabbath. Well, as we turn now to connecting Ha'azinu to the bigger movements in the calendar and God's overall plan of salvation that is evident in the calendar, we can say that as we read Ha'azinu in this moment in the calendar between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's usually when it's read, we're being invited to look back on our own lives and on the journey of the previous six months and make sense of it by recognizing that it's all good. It's all good. It's all for our growth with him. And so let me just invite each of you to pause the video now and to cast your mind back to the previous half a year and really your whole life. And up until this moment and what comes to mind, both the good and the not so good. And to say to God in this moment in the calendar, I'm going to trust you. And I know that it's all working together for good. Those embarrassing moments, those, those moments of loss, those moments with family that were good and bad, you know what? It's all for my good. It was, it's all for my good. It's all working together. And so that bigger perspective is a key piece of our foundation in this foundation moment as we move forward onto another journey. So I'll give you a moment to pause the video and do that. It's a cathartic thing to do now. Well, continuing uh, with a couple more connections now to the calendar, let's remember that we are in the 10 days of awe. And that is a time focused on repentance. And it's appropriate at this time to read a song that, frankly, is focused on God's wrath, his power to bring a necessary correction. We can't ever let loose of the idea that God will not be content with our sin because it separates us from him. And in a moment of time, he can bring devastation into our lives until we turn away from the sin and repent. That's a powerful God, right? Just takes a word from him. And we need to be stand in awe, 10 days of awe. We need to stand in awe of him at this time. And so a final thought here is that we stand exactly where Israel stands in this portion, on the edge of entering the land of promise. Remember that Israel entering the land under Joshua Right? It's about to happen at the end of the book of Deuteronomy here. And so it's connected to this period of the calendar. Um, this period when the darkness starts to dominate the day, which is what begins happening right near Rosh Hashanah each year. Right, The night gets longer than the day and continues to grow. And so for the generation born in the wilderness, the generation that we read about here in Deuteronomy that stands in front of Moses now, um, Going into the land is like putting on this dark physical body. So the daily miracles of manna and water from the rock and the pillar of cloud leading them, those are all about to end when they go into the land and they eat from the grain of the land. And um, when they inherit cities and permanent homes and fields, they will need to descend into the mundane tasks of life, the sowing and reaping and building and repairing, and cleaning, and weaving, and fetching of water each day, 
you know, we take a lot of these things for granted. But um, it wasn't so easy over most of the time to, to get water. We couldn't just turn on the tap. You had to go with the bucket to the well. And, and all of that takes time, and it takes part of your day, all of those mundane things. And so the message to us as we descend into the same phase of the journey, this darkness, this physicality, this mundane day-to-day, is that when we are blessed with physical abundance, when we bring in that big harvest and God begins the rain for the next planting, and we're comfortable and all of that, when we reach that place of physical stability, don't forget the one who is the true source of that blessing. That's the main idea of this song of Moses. He will not accept the loss of relationship. We have to always keep in mind that the physical world is here for us to elevate for spiritual purposes. And as we do that, God inhabits it. He inhabits the physical and draws nearer and nearer to us. But if instead the physical becomes an end in itself, it separates us from him and he will tear it down. And so we hear that message now about this danger that's inherent in this physical blessing as we head into the darkness of this winter. And in Israel, that's a time of physical blessing when the rains come and the grains, grain gets put into the ground and it turns green. So we, we think of winter as stark here in Ohio anyway, a little bit different there in Israel. And so, um, you know, you don't have to go water yourself. The rain is coming down from the sky. And so be careful when you're blessed with physical blessing, right? We tend to, we tend to even think, I, I made all of this myself, and God will not abide that, that thought, and we drift from him. Well, I want to shift gears now to talk about the idea of song in general and how it relates to the salvation pattern. And I know that sounds like a rather strange idea, song. What does song have to do with salvation? But it it will hopefully make some sense here as we explore a few points. And so first of all, song is something we see at the end of a big event or the end of a journey in general. The people cross the sea, for example, and they break into song. You know, Mikamoka. We um, complete six days of working. And what do we do on the Shabbat? Well, song is a big part of God's people getting together to celebrate the completion of another weekly journey. We see song prominently in the book of Revelation 2, which is an ending point. We're talking about song at the end. And it even comes particularly at the end of Revelation. And here now we have the Song of Moses as one of the last acts God has for Moses, this giving over of this song. One of his last acts in his life, this life that's so full. Um, Here it ends with this song. And it's one of the last passages in the whole of the Torah, the five books of the Torah. And so why is song associated with ending moments like this? And connected to this question is, uh, is another one. What is this great power that music has? We all know the power that music has to absolutely transport us to just a transcendent place. 
Well, I think the answer to both questions is that the end of salvation is about creating something much bigger than the individual. And, and being in that body that's created, that we create together, is exhilarating. It's exhilarating as we create this thing that is way beyond any one of us. The end of salvation is all about finding your place in the body and giving from that unique place and creating something together that is far, far beyond our individual abilities to create. And this is what makes music so special and such an appropriate expression for these ending moments. Each, each instrument or each voice on its own has a certain limited glory to it. Picture a violin just playing on its own, or even just playing a single note. But if you add in the dimension of time and more notes so that we can hear a story that begins to emerge as note follows note, right? connecting time moments together with this story, now it's more interesting. And then you add into that another instrument that is playing its own song simultaneously. And the two songs are made to blend together and harmonize. Harmonize over here, let's say, and then clash a little bit over here and then build together here. And now the glory of each is being magnified. Something else is being created as the two play together. And then you add in 10 more instruments doing the same and then a hundred instruments doing the same and a choir, you know, voices doing the same. And the overall body that they build over time, especially if they're skillful, it could be a big chaos, you know, if they're not skillful. But if they're skillful, it absolutely transports us. Again, it's about different parts that work together to create something that is far bigger than each piece is capable of on its own. And so this is why music transports us. And this is why music is so closely connected to the ending points of the salvation pattern, which we are in right now, an ending and a beginning. And so this is why we have, I think, this song near the end of the Torah. And for an added dimension here, Ha'azinu serves a very practical purpose as a witness from one generation to another, from one moment of God's relationship with Israel to another moment. And so there are layers here of, um, the layers are profound within the song. And so it's appropriate to see song at the end, and that's one level of meaning here. And I want to look next at how the words of the song, because that's just the idea of song being here at the end. That's one layer of meaning but there are words here. And so um, I want to look next at how the words of the song tell a kind of familiar story. But before we leave the idea of music in general, I want to make an application here to a curious pattern in our modern music. And did you know that there's a particular chord progression that is well known for how incredibly common it is in our popular music. It has its own Wikipedia article because it's so common in our modern music. And it's, it's called the 1564 
1-5-6-4 chord progression. And so I'll play it for you here on my phone, which is not something I've done before, so I don't know if it'll come out, but I've actually slowed it down a little bit. And so let's see if we can hear it here. Again. Well, let me suggest that this bass <coughs> pattern underlying a lot of our popular music, it resonates with us because it's tapping into, guess what, the salvation story. Here's what <coughs> happens Here's what happens if we look at the notes um, written out. Here's what happens in this chord progression. The beginning chord is, relatively speaking, relative to the other notes, it's um, low and a kind of a stable sound. It doesn't make us feel uneasy or that it wants to move to another, another place. So it starts there, a little bit low, stable. The second chord literally descends lower on the musical scale, and it feels unresolved. It feels unsettled. <clears throat> um, then we have a third chord that lifts us up higher. It, it even goes higher a bit from where it started in the first place. And then a fourth chord that goes higher still, and it feels stable at that last place. And so listen again. Um, and listen for that progression, <clears throat> which is one, low and stable, two, descending and unstable, three, rising higher than the beginning point, and then four, higher still and stable again. And so you can hear at the end there that <clears throat> it, it, it finishes with the first chord again. You can hear how it steps down, or at least this little file here ends with the final chord. And um, so you can hear how much it, it has risen by the end. And so this is the story of how we grow from a lower place to a higher place. The reason this chord progression resonates so profoundly with us is that it echoes, again, the pattern of salvation. It echoes the story of Yeshua, who is salvation, right? Salvation of God, his name means. And it echoes our own story. And so in that story, we start, one, uh, we start at a lower place, uh, but as a protected child. There's a stability there, but there's not a, a maturity there. And then two, we begin to venture out on our own. We, in fact, we experience the true depths of that lower place. It's not a great experience right at first, we can say, as we're really waking up to the, the, to the place that we're born into. We find that there's death there and separation from God. We're headed downward a bit. And then three, we call out to God and are reconnected to him at a place 
that is actually now higher than where we even started from. We're older here and we're coming back to relationship with God. And then four, we go even higher from that place of reconnection to a stable place of deep oneness, deep echad. We don't just come together and that's the end. We grow together and that's even higher and stable. And so getting back to the Song of Moses now, we have a similar pattern here, or at least the gist of it, as we have three steps here rather than four. So Grant points out that the layout of the song in a Torah scroll divides it into three sections. The Song of Moses is unique in its layout in the, in the Torah scroll in that it's separated into two columns with a blank space in the middle of the page. The ends of the lines are indicated with a colon. And so as the song begins, these colons are on the left side of the page. But at verse 15, it switches. And so remember, verse 15 begins with, but Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. And at that point, the colons that are marking the ending of the lines, they switch to the right column. And so they continue there, ending on the right, until verse 39, when the tone of the, of the song changes again to something like redemption. The colons go back to the left side at that point where God is talking about taking vengeance on his enemies. And so I'm going to give a quick description of the three sections. And so listen for the salvation pattern of oneness, separation, and reunification. The first section speaks of the greatness and faithfulness of God and eventually comes to the main idea of how God rescued and cared for Israel. It has imagery of Israel as a cast-off newborn that God finds in a wasteland and surrounds with protection. And so again, we actually have done, you know, we, we've dipped into this a little bit, but there is a a kind of oneness between a parent and a baby that is completely dependent on the parent. There's a oneness. We start with oneness. Um, but it's not a oneness of maturity yet, obviously. Right? So section one, I found you as a baby in the wilderness. I was a parent to you. Oneness. In the second section, Israel has grown up some and is called fat, which is biblically you know, that's the biblical equivalent of something like strong and healthy. And at that point, Israel stumbles into idolatry and is punished for it. And so in the Song of Moses, the second point, the point of separation, is the longest section. And frankly, this separation is the emphasis of the whole song. And so as the Kehoe Komish puts it, the song is filled with punishment, threats, and retribution. And so, retribution. So, step two, separation. Oneness, separation, right? Punishment, threats, and retribution. The third section starts with, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And it goes on to speak of God taking vengeance on his adversaries, as we've said. 
And so there is a rectification and a reunion that happens at the end of the song where God cleanses his land and Israel has, uh, has reason to rejoice at the end. And so oneness, separation, and reunification. Well, as I read it, though, the ending brings us to a question. Who is God taking retribution on? Right? There's a cleansing. There's reason for rejoicing at the end. But is, it, is he taking retribution on those opposed to him from within Israel? Right? There are parts of Israel that have gone astray, and God will take his retribution on those parts of Israel. Or is it talking about the nations who he uses to punish Israel? Right? It's ambiguous. It's not saying who these enemies are. And as we chase down what it means that the ending of this song almost leaves us feeling incomplete, we're going to see some amazing connections here. So strap in for a minute. Um, what we know from the song is that the end result is that the land is cleansed, as I said. And so there is this healing On the one hand, the language sounds a lot like the parts of the prophets where God has used a foreign nation to punish Israel, to take them captive, for example. But then when that cleansing of Israel is done, God turns around and brings punishment to that nation that took Israel captive. And the rabbis do read the ending of the Song of Moses in this way. They see here an allusion to the Messianic age when the entire world is subdued under the Messiah. But on the other hand, as believers in Yeshua, you know, as we come to this song, we're, now we're apt to see the Messiah everywhere. And don't get me wrong, I think we can see the Messiah as the rabbis do there. But something just feels not quite uh, complete there. Um, and so we believers in the Messiah have to admit that the nations aren't really much in view throughout the song. The song has just gone on at great length talking about Israel herself as standing opposed to God. And in the end here, it just says that God will take vengeance on his enemies. So again, which enemies? It looks more like it's the enemies within Israel. Within Israel. This is a cleansing of Israel. And so in truth, I think it is meant to be read in both ways. And so, because every part of creation, and this song is a unit in itself, it's, it's a unit in creation itself, it's a complete song. And so it has to contain the entire story of salvation within it. Uh, but at the end of that story, the, the nations come under the same lash that Israel came under. And so we can read it that way. Of course we can. The whole picture has to be there. But the fact that it's so ambiguous here also pushes us to reach for another piece to finish the song. We want, there's, there's more. <laughs> and so and it's, it's very hard-edged at the end, as I said, God taking vengeance like this. That's step one, right? The sages say God was going to create the world with strict, strict justice, that attribute. In the end, he decided it won't maintain that way. And so he created the world through the attribute of mercy. What they're saying is that we often see this strict justice at the beginning of a thing that ends in mercy. 
And so we don't find a lot of that at the end of the Song of Moses. And so if we see in the song the idea that God is bringing correction to Israel, then the part about the nations is missing. And the Song of Moses needs that to be completed. The fact that this song was split into six parts and sung in its entirety over the course of six Sabbaths instead of seven during the temple times already is a clue that we have found that we have... um, we have here something that's incomplete. And so, yes, on the one hand, we can say the whole picture is there, but on the other, it leans toward needing a completing movement, we could say. Music, we talk about different movements. And that movement should have something to do with the healing of the nations and the earth as well. And so you might be guessing what the completion of this song is by this point. Um, But before we get there, let me talk for a minute about this pattern of first the cleansing of Israel, then the cleansing of the nations. You know, as we read the prophets, as I just mentioned, we keep seeing that when God is done using the nations to cleanse Israel, he turns his wrath on the nations who oppressed Israel. And up until this week, I've been really seeing that as well. The nations get what's coming to them. They, They shouldn't be so willing to come up against God's people and to mistreat God's people even. And so there's some truth there. But this week I started seeing it differently. A theme of Ha'azinu is that God's hand of wrath is always for a purpose, especially a cleansing purpose. And that applies equally to Israel and the nations, right? He's not just saying, well, you shouldn't have done that to my people, even though I kind of gave you the opportunity to do that. It's not just that. And what we see over and over again in Scripture is that God cares just as much about the nations and their healing and their cleansing as he does about Israel. And he extends salvation to both, and there's an order to it. There's an order. First, God brings his hand of correction against Israel, then the nations. But in the end, both experience the same cleansing. And so this week, the Lord led me, led me in my daily reading to a certain passage in Zephaniah 3, where we read something remarkable about the healing of the nations. And so in the beginning of the chapter, Jerusalem is kind of lumped in, Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, Jerusalem is lumped in with the other cities of the nations that have rebelled and been defiled and become desolate. Jerusalem and the whole earth are devoured by God's wrath in this chapter. But the end goal of this wrath is not destruction, but life, both for Israel and for the nations. And so I'm going to read a short passage from Zephaniah 3 and listen for what God promises to the nations. It's a wonderful promise. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. There's jealousy here. God is jealous. There's a jealous uh, motivation here, which means I love you and I want you to be with me. And so it goes on. (coughs) So the beginning is, gather you up for my wrath, For then I will give to the people's purified lips 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. It's just a beautiful idea there. And so there's an intermingling here of the fate of Israel and the fate of the nations. And so remember that the nations are like a bride to Israel and both receive correction at God's hand. But what I find remarkable here is God's statement that he will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. All of them may call. Think of whatever nation, whatever rogue nation is out there today. They too will call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord with the rest of us. And so to serve with one accord here is an interesting phrase. It literally is serving with one combined set of shoulders, one, one shoulders, a set of shoulders. La'avdo shechem echad. Echad is a oneness in which different and opposite parts come together as a oneness. We can say that Israel is the right shoulder and the nations are the left. And they come together as one here to call upon the name of the Lord and serve him together. It's quite an image in the Hebrew there. So recall that a special reading associated with the fall Moedim is the book of Jonah, which is read in the synagogues um, in some churches on Yom Kippur afternoon. It's a book that is aimed at redemption for the nations. Redemption for the nations. So the whole premise of the book is Israel taking the light to the nations and the nations receiving that light and repenting. And so while the book is usually associated with repentance and God relenting from a harsh judgment, and so these are two important ideas connected to the 10 days and Yom Kippur, this repentance and this God relenting from his judgment, it's important to notice that redemption is coming here in this story to the nations the great city of Nineveh, which is in modern Iraq today, northern Iraq. So this seventh month is the seed of this journey that is leading to the redemption for the whole world, right? The seventh month is talking, you know, we have to find in the seed that we're walking through now, this seed of this redemption for the nations. And here we have this book of Jonah and the salvation of of the city of Nineveh, the nations. So my point here is just that there's a pattern in Scripture. First, God cleanses Israel, then he cleanses the nations. And we can also add that finally he cleanses the earth itself. Don't we look forward to that, like when the animals are not eating each other? And, um, And then that's the end of the salvation pattern. I could say we, too, not eating the animals, right? We're just as guilty. But uh, with the song of Moses, there's only a hint that the nations are in view at the end. But it's not clearly stated, and the whole song is not focused on the nations, but on Israel. And so where are the nations? Where is the end of the story? And so all of this brings us to the missing piece, the song of the Lamb, What the song of Moses is missing, the ending piece, the ending movement, is the song of the Lamb. We see that song in Revelation chapter 5, as Grant points out. The emphasis of the song of the Lamb is salvation for the nations. 
and then all the creatures of the world, all the living things. And so let me read the passage now and listen for those two ideas, salvation for the nations and for the rest of the living creatures. And before I read it, um, a couple words of background. The chapter begins with, No one being found who is worthy to break the seven seals and open the title deed to earth, as Grant calls it, the title deed to earth. I like that. All of the earth, including the nations and everything else, that is until Yeshua picks up the scroll. And it goes on. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature In heaven, every creature, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Wow, such a scene. And so these lowliest ones, all the living things on earth, are brought into the song to give glory to the Lamb. And as they do, as these lowest ones are are praising the Lamb, the most exalted beings, right, those surrounding nearest to God and, and His throne, shout a amen and they fall down of the elders and and um they worship and so there's a full circuit uh connection here throughout all the living things in heaven and on earth a oneness right this oneness as they are singing the praises of the lamb and the creation is is one it is made complete But there's more here even, more layers, another layer here. The two songs, right? The song of Moses, right? And so that song of the Lamb focused on all the nations and all the peoples. And it's focused on all the creatures coming into this song, into this oneness. But the two songs, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, they have to be put together to be complete. They have to be sung together. And we have a picture of that too, and and we're given separate words, lyrics here at that time. And so what happens when the two are sung together is is really just fascinating. We read about this as as we're drawing near to the end of the book of Revelation, 
and the end of the entire Bible, Revelation 15. Remember, there's only 20-some chapters in Revelation. And who gets to sing this most, most complete of all the songs? It is those who conquer the beast. And so we're especially talking about the beast within, those who conquer the beast, the beast within, that, that animal side. And um, so let me read it. In Revelation 15, these conquerors, these overcomers, are standing by the sea of glass with harps in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, it says, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, and here it is, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so what we notice about the combined song is the first part of each line is focused on God's power and justice, his gavura, fear of God. And that is the emphasis of the song of Moses. So we have two verses here in the beginning of each verse is this might, God the Almighty. And the second part of each line is focused on the nations. So the nations are mentioned in the second part. And so listen again for these two sides in each of the lines. So first with verse 3 says, this is Revelation 15, 3, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, Just and true, just and true are your ways. And then the nations, O king of the nations. And then verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Now the nations, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's a balance here. The fact is that Moses and the covenant he mediates on their own don't quite get us to the goal. Almost, but not quite. And so we see at the end of this portion, God says to Moses, climb Mount Nebo, and I'll let you see the land, but you can't go in. But Moses, you know, he gets close, but not quite there. But Moses does go in doesn't he? We see him in the Holy Land on the Mount of Transfiguration when Yeshua is transfigured. But the way for Moses to go in can't quite get there by himself. The way for him to go in is opened only through Yeshua at Yeshua's transfiguration at that time. Well, we've been talking about Yeshua all through here, but as we close today, I do have one final thought focused on Yeshua. It's a connection between Yeshua and a special day that we pass through during the week, the fast of Gedaliah. This happens on the third of Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah is the first of Tishrei. We're talking about the third of Tishrei here, this fast. Although the event that it commemorates likely happened on Rosh Hashanah itself. We don't fast on Rosh Hashanah. However, um, We don't fast on Rosh Hashanah 
Um, and the tradition is that Rosh Hashanah is two days. And so even within Israel, it's two days. So this minor fast is moved to the third of the month, two days of Rosh Hashanah, and then the first opportunity for the fast is the third of Tishrei. And so the fast of Gedaliah recalls the assassination of the good governor Gedaliah during the time of the Babylonian exile. In the cycle of the fasts, right, we have four fasts, four, four minor fasts around the, the calendar. The Tishbaav is a major fast. Um, but those are all connected to the cycle of exile. And so this is a sort of ending point where um, all hope, it's an ending point in that cycle of exile where all hope of reconstituting Israel is destroyed. Gedaliah was appointed over Judea after the ruling class was taken away to Babylon, right? They, uh, the uh, uh, Babylonians swoop in, they take the ruling class away, and they appoint a governor, and that's, and that's Gedaliah. And he rules over what's left of Israel. And the people respected him. He called the remnant to come back to the land from the surrounding nations to which they had fled and begin working the land again. And under his wise leadership, Israel began to form again as the people tilled and planted and began to harvest again. But not for long. Before the nation can fully get its feet under it again, Gedaliah is murdered at what is thought to be a Rosh Hashanah meal. He and all those, we're just told it's in the seventh month, but it appears to be Rosh Hashanah. Um, and so he and all those with him are murdered by a surviving member of the Judean royal family named Ishmael ben Netanya. And so that's a member of the Judean royal family, but he's in league with the, a neighbor uh, nation, the Ammonites, and the Ammonites send him to kill Gedaliah. And so Ishmael killed so many that day that he filled an entire large cistern with dead bodies. The remaining Israelites fled to Egypt against the prophetic advice of Jeremiah. And that was the end of Israel's rebirth in the land. You know, Jeremiah says, if you go down to Egypt, Babylon is going to find you there and kill you there. And so Aleph Beta has a teaching that draws out parallels between Gedaliah and Joseph, the patriarch Joseph. And as Grant has told us many times, Joseph is one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of the Messiah. And so like the Messiah, Gedaliah oversees the ingathering from the nations. He is betrayed by a Jewish brother as Yeshua was betrayed by Judas. He is elevated first by the Gentiles right? It's the Gentiles who first latch on to the Messiah and elevate him. Like Gedaliah is elevated by the Babylonians, right? And in the same way that, that the Gentile Pontius Pilate, you know, elevates Yeshua literally on a cross and puts a sign over him, King of the Jews, right? Here we have the Gentile nations lifting up Yeshua and proclaiming him King. Well, the Babylonians appointed Gedaliah king. And, um, and so we can see these overlaps between Gedaliah and Yeshua. And so the connection I want to make to the calendar here is this. We are about to celebrate the day that Yeshua brings his own blood into the heavenly holy of holies, 
right? Yom Kippur. What has to come before that moment is crucifixion, death. We know that the crucifixion happens at Passover, but we have an echo here on this side of the calendar, the assassination of this wise and good leader of Israel, this uniter of Israel. But God takes this destruction and works it for good. In fact, Yeshua's death is from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. And so let's take heart in this season where we are encouraged to look back and count it all as good, both the ups and the downs, right? That's kind of part of what this season is about. Go back and look at your life and just decide and admit this is all for the good. And so let's be encouraged as we do that by this picture of Yeshua's death at this time of year through Gedaliah. Um, let's be encouraged that God does this first. He suffers first. God can also look back on the ups and downs. God doesn't ask us to go through the valleys without first going through those same valleys himself. And you say, why should I look back on the horrible things that I, you know, that have happened to me and, and count that all for good? Well, the answer is, look at Yeshua slain from the foundation of the world. God's son went through worse than you, and God used it for the salvation of everyone. So trust him in this. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I will post an outline for this teaching below the video. May God make us a people who can truly hear him speaking through all that he brings into our lives, right? The, the good and the bad. It only looks like bad. In the end, we'll see it's all good. And so may, he, um, may we be a people of much song and may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.